going to continue where we left off last week. We're in Genesis 3 this morning. And we left off, we're talking about the, the, the crafty serpent. Um, serpent. In other words, Satan. And we talked about Satan all last week and so forth. And we'll talk a little bit uh, about uh, his crafty ways today as we continue in that. But we're going to be in uh, Genesis 3, uh, I guess the beginning of the chapter here. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the women, uh, to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the, tree, uh, from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will, uh, you will not certainly die, the the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, when Satan told Eve that she wouldn't surely die and that her eyes would be opened, Satan was actually using a kind of a half-truth. She didn't instantly die, did she? I mean, we read the story, she didn't instantly die. So he had part of the truth there, but it began the process of death for her and Adam and Eve and all of mankind and the earth at that point. Her eyes were opened instantly. That's also truth. She, you know, Satan uses these parts of truth to get to us. Her eyes were open. In other words, she had more wisdom. She had more understanding of what was going on around her. Now, we, we like to, as parents, uh, as, as a parent myself, there are certain things that I shield my children from, Right? I mean, we, you know, at certain ages, they shouldn't know the truth about everything. I mean, that's a good thing, right? So we shield the truth from them, even though, true, you know, somebody would say, well, truth is always good. Well, yeah, but truth to a four-year-old, maybe not. You, you see what I'm saying? Uh, I could go into some examples, but uh, I, I think we'll just leave it at that. But Satan was very upfront. Your eyes will be opened. She assumed it would be a good thing. Enlightenment is good. That's what the world tells us. Satan was up front. But he didn't tell her the back end of that. He didn't tell her the consequences that she would have that was not a good thing, that was actually a very bad thing for her and the rest of mankind. They were innocent in everything. They walked with God. They consulted with God. They followed God. But when they ate from the tree, things changed. All of a sudden, they were independent from God. This is like when I, uh, uh, we have some neighbor kids that my son hangs out with, and they come down to the home, and they love to hide in Brandon's room, and they all get on their little devices. They're all playing together, but they're playing individually. You know, they, they get hidden in their little, you know, the iPad, and they're playing Minecraft all together. But my son has this uh, tendency to hoard his candy. We still have candy, not from this Easter, but the Easter before, okay? He, lo he will eat half his dessert and put some of it away to save for later. He loves that. You know, he loves that dessert, wants to save it. Well, these kids, when they come over, they found Brandon's candy stash. 
they just dive in, right? I mean, you know, they, in other words, they don't have the adult, they don't have the parent around to say, whoa, 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 eating that much candy is probably not good for you right now. It's going to make you sick, you know. All they see is their eyes are open. They're independent from their parents. This is us being independent from God. All of a sudden, we make our own decisions. I can decide what is good for me. And, you know, man was dependent on God, and now man is no longer dependent on him. Truth became relative based on my personal preferences. My truth may not necessarily be your truth when we enter sin into the picture. There's no right or wrong. It all depends on the situation. Situational ethics is what it's called. Before the fall of man, we really didn't have a conscience uh, to, to talk of. They were innocent. They were ignorant of evil. But now they've been made aware of evil. They now had a conscience. God could have walked away mad. He could have just said, I'm done with you. Why did I even start this? But instead, God gave us a conscience to think of. To know what is good and what is not. God still wants us to walk in truth and live according to His standard. He wants us to live holy lives, righteous lives, and in truth. So He gave us a built-in warning system in our head, okay? It's like God came and put an alarm system in your house, okay? But your house is your, your body, your brain. He put that alarm system in there. And that alarm system is called what? Guilt. Oh, how many people love guilt? But God gave it to us. What do you mean? You don't like guilt? God gave you that guilt. See my point? Guilt doesn't feel good. It makes us uncomfortable. It makes us ancient, uh, anxious. I mean, it can make us ancient too because we worry about it. So either we get right with God... We have this guilt on us, we get right with God, we repent, we admit what happens, or what do we do? We turn off the alarm. We turn off our conscience. In 1984, there was an airline jet, it's called uh, Abanca Airlines. Uh, it crashed in Spain, and what happened was, is, as they're flying, the cockpit warning started going off. And all around the world, I don't know if you know this, in jets and stuff, everything's done in English, okay? You don't have, if you're a Chinese airline, you're you know, flying on a Chinese jet, you don't have Chinese information coming out. The cockpit warning is always done in English. I don't know why that is. That's just the way it is, okay? But in English, the cockpit warning is going off going, pull up, pull up, you know, in the mechanical voice, you know, that, that comes on and everything. And the pilot was so irritated thinking that the thing was malfunctioning. He said, shut up, gringo. Apparently he doesn't like English. Shut up, gringo. And they found this from the black box before he turned off the automatic warning system. They proceeded to fly right into the side of a mountain. This is exactly how we treat our conscience. It warns us. It says, pull up, pull up, pull up, or go this way, or what you're doing is wrong. And we go in there and go, shut up, gringo, shut up, conscience. And really what we're saying is shut up, God. And we try to turn it off. And we proceed to hit side of a mountain. We think, this is not right. This is making me feel guilty. Therefore, I will turn it off. Common sense tells us that we shouldn't turn it off, but we do it anyway. This is like last week when I was talking about 
this concept that we have uh, as humans that the good feelings are from God and bad feelings are from Satan. And, and that is not really a biblical concept. A couple of weeks ago, I, I might have I mentioned this on Wednesday night. I don't think I've mentioned it here, but a couple of weeks ago, I cooked 160 pounds of chicken for a father-daughter dance out at Sundale. But on Friday before, I cooked half of it. So I had 80 pounds of chicken. I mean, it smelled good. Oh, man, I'd go out there and open up that. I'd put it all in the fridge, you know, 80 pounds, and I'd, uh, man, you open up that fridge, you're like, oh, it smells good. The problem was my fridge didn't keep up overnight. I had 80 pounds of chicken. And I go out there the next morning because I'm going to cook 80 more the next day, and I uh, go to load this up and take it where we're going, and I'm filling the bottom of the pan. I'm going, it's not quite cold. So I go get my thermometer, and I stick it in there, and the temperature was only like at 58, 60 degrees. Some of it was a little warmer, some of it was a little colder. Now, I could turn off my conscience and say, hey, I've cooked 80 pounds already. We're going to serve this food. Now, would that have been a good thing? I had a bad feeling that this is not good. I, there's no way I could serve this. It would make people sick. I mean, it could, I mean, heaven forbid that somebody gets sick enough and their body's, you know, their immune system's down enough that it actually could kill somebody. You see my point? But if I turned off my conscience, I could do that. But I'm sitting there going, even though you open up the pan, it looks amazing. I mean, I cooked it. Of course it looks amazing. But I mean, it looks amazing. And you open up that fridge and it smells so wonderful, yet it was very bad. Our conscience helps us. So a bad feeling about the temperature turned out to be correct and a good thing. That's what God has given us. That's what guilt does to, uh, uh, does to us. God gives us a conscience to warn us of when we step out of bounds of His law, His rules, His ways. They're not designed, for, you know, for keeping us from having a good life. It's not like God's sitting there going, Alan, I don't want you to have fun. No, no fun. That's not God. God is not up there doing that. But he goes, Alan, I want to give you parameters in life that if you live this way, then I will bless you and you'll have fun in a different way. The world says this type of fun is godly, or not really godly because they don't believe in God. But they say this uh, type of fun is good. And we go, wait, wait a second. No, I've learned that that is bad. That's not good. We like to live without constraints. We like to live outside the law. No boundaries. Look at the mess that we're in today. Broken marriages, messed up children, all because we're not allowing our conscience to warn us. Warn us that we're, you know, that we're violating God's law. We like to justify what we're doing. We like to go, this isn't wrong. Everybody's doing it. If it feels good, how could it be wrong? How could it be bad? But we also know in the end times, the good will be called bad and the bad will be called good. The Word of God tells us that. Eventually, a person will ignore their conscience long enough that it leads to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, where he's talking and he goes, whose consciences have been seared as a hot iron. Do you know when you burn yourself really badly, I'm talking about really badly, where you have to spend time in a hospital, that type of bad? It can heal. You can heal. 
but you don't feel anything in those areas that you really burn because all the ends of the, the you know, nerve endings are all damaged. So now all of a sudden you touch a hot, something that's really hot, you won't even realize it and your skin will be melting in a sense. You, know, you see what I'm saying? The same with our conscience. When we justify things over and over, we do the same sinful thing over and over, do it long enough, we don't feel the burn anymore. There's not an alarm going off. This is like us having an alarm at our house and never arming it. Is that a good thing? No. See, I have a video in my garage, and on Sunday mornings, because I'm a pastor and people know I'm a pastor, that's a prime time to rob a pastor's house, right? No one's home. They're all at church. So I have a video in my garage, and when I see Mr. B, I check my video, and I see Mr. B, he's the last one that leaves the house. He leaves, I get on my phone, and I arm my house. That's a good thing. My conscience tells me that's a good thing. But if we never set our alarm, never allow our conscience to tell us, it all results in unbridled sin. First Timothy 3, and it says, in the, you know, in the, in the last days, these things will be happening. As my almost three-year-old says, uh, he, he likes... Uh, he likes, uh, what is it, um, Little Einstein. And one of the shows, they, they always go, big, 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 big crescendo. And that's how he, you know, he says it. It's hilarious to hear a, you know, almost three-year-old talking that way, you know. But this is what he's talking about here. It says, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. It's pretty big, isn't it? Lovers of money pretty big. Boastful and proud and abusive and disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiveness, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having form of ungodliness but denying its power, having nothing to do, or then he says, have nothing to do with such people. Folks, this is the evening news. We see it every day. The Word of God says that evil will reach a climax in the last days. I feel like we're in the last days. I don't know what that means. I don't know exactly when that, when the Lord's going to come. I just know that it's getting closer. But it began in the first days in the Garden of Eden. Ever since sin has entered, entered this world, Atheists and agnostics have tried to use evil to disprove the reality of God. Paul uses this idea that since there's an evil in the world, or, or not Paul, I'm sorry. Sometimes I look down at my notes and I glance and I start the word and say the wrong thing. But people use the idea that since there's evil in this world, that that is proof that God doesn't exist. Have you ever heard that argument? Well, why, you know, since there's this in the world, that proves that God doesn't exist. If God is all, you know, powerful and good, then why does evil exist? And Satan has devised this great argument against the existence of God. If God is all God, if he could do everything, then why hasn't he eliminated evil? If God is all powerful, that he could, you know, eliminate evil, if he doesn't do it, therefore, there is no God. But again, that's man putting God on our timetable. 
See, God will do these things, but he's doing it on his timetable. Many people use this argument against there being a God, but they assume that God is out there doing nothing. But we know that a God, you know, our God is an active God, and he will eliminate evil in the end. It's all about the way they word the question. If he hasn't, he doesn't exist. That's a false argument. The book of Revelation teaches us that God is going to settle the accounts one day. And that God is a a gracious and long-suffering God who desires that we all be saved. And he's giving every person every chance to repent and be saved. He loves us. He wants us to be saved. So don't mistake God's grace for weakness. Don't mistake that, that, you know, God, uh, since God doesn't uh, judge immediately, that he approves everything. Now, when's the last time you watched half a movie and then turned it off and criticized the uh, filmmaker for not finishing? See what I'm saying? We like to do that with God all, you know, all the time. The story isn't over yet. The book of Revelation gives us a glimpse of how God ends the story. How God deals with people who refuse to accept his gracious invitation. He's inviting all people to be saved. Come to me, he says. And God is so loving, he's going to bring judgment to this world. People's heart has gotten so hard from this world that sometimes God has to yell to get our attention. You know, ever so often I have to do this with my kids. You ever yelled at your kids? So you're, you know what I'm talking about, right? You're like, hey, Brandon. Brandon. Hey, Bra- Brandon. Hey, Brandon. I mean, sometimes you have to yell. And, and if, if you allow your children to ignore you all the time, you always have to scream at them. You see what I'm saying? So I, don't, I, I try not to allow that in our household. In fact, I had to go out and remind kids yesterday that, uh, that my wife was out there and they were fixing to get ready to leave and they were going to go pick blueberries and stuff. And I was keeping Grayson at home, but they were like dragging everything out of the garage like it's a play day at home, you know, and there's a whole bunch of stuff, Nerf guns and all that kind of stuff. And they're dragging it all out. And I, I called Lisa from the house out because I had Grayson. I didn't want to go out there. And I said, they don't need to be grabbing all the stuff out. They're fixing to leave. She goes, I know, I've told them. Oh, that didn't sit well with me. I walked out, and I said, guys, pick up all the stuff. Hey, guys, pick up all the stuff. You know, you had to get that male, that, that voice going, you know, that authoritative voice. And I, I had them all pick it all up, put it in the garage. I said, now, come here. And I started talking to them about respect of parents, respect of women, that just because I have the harsher voice doesn't mean you always listen to me and ignore her. You know, we have to talk about that kind of stuff. We don't allow that stuff to happen. But if we ignore God long enough, God has to yell at us to get our attention. And he's been yelling at this world. He's been yelling at it. Sometimes God puts us through a difficult, short period of of difficulty to get our attention, to bring us back to Christ. And that is a good thing. God will give us pain sometimes and put us through a painful situation in proportion to help us wake up and see the truth, to repent, to say, God, I should not be doing this. He brings judgment when he has to. 
God doesn't really want to do that. I never want to punish my kids. I'm willing to, but I'd rather not. In Ezekiel 18, God is pleading with his people, please turn from your sins. Why do you die? I get no pleasure out of the death of the wicked. Come to me, I will forgive, confess your sins. That is the heart of God. That's what Ezekiel was dealing with as he was talking to Israel. Now, the atheist would counter this argument. Well, if God is all good and powerful, well, then God must have created evil. Where did it come from? It sounds good. But back in... Augustine, one of our church fathers we call him, is, you know, back in around 400 A.D. said this, to say God created everything and the evil is something, therefore God created evil, is to miss the real nature of evil. God is the author of everything. We accept that premise. But evil is not a thing. It's a lack of a thing. Hence it follows that God is not the author of evil. Now, in other words, evil is like rust to a car. Okay, Augustine didn't say that. I'm saying that. But. Or rot to a tree. It's a parasite that lives or exists in something else. God is a good God and created a good universe and gave man a good thing called what? Free will. It allowed for the possibility of evil, all because he gave us free will. We can choose. Think of it this way. Did Ford, okay, I mean, he's, I mean, lots of people back then were tink, tinkering, trying to make car, uh, cars, but we kind of, you know, okay, Ford came up with it, okay. We kind of, you know, give it to him. But, but did Ford, when he created cars, did he create deaths? No. He created a car and it made car deaths possible. But he did not cause car deaths. You see, the argument about God would, would mean that we would call our, all cars evil, along with the man who invented them. You see, my, are you following my logic here on the thinking? Yes? No? It's the same with many arguments, gun argument, all, all sorts of things. Just because they're responsible, the item or the inventor is not evil. It is the way people use them. They've used their freedom irresponsible. And this is where evil comes from. The Bible teaches us that it's not the world that God created us to live in. That is not what God wanted for us. Satan changed it. Really, Adam and Eve changed it when they disobeyed God. It was their choice. The more people act independent from God, in other words, rebel, the worse things have gotten in this world. In Revelation, it, it's going to reach this crescendo, and you know, during this you know, seven-year period, about halfway you know, in it, and rebellion reaches this absolute climax, and, and the grace of God ends, and judgment comes. Now, what is God supposed to do with people who, or who are completely defiant? How long will God allow man to shake his fist at him? How long? I mean, it's just God's mercy that it hasn't already happened, that God has brought judgment. It's his mercy. Okay, well, back to Genesis 3, 7, it says, 
Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. Now, we always make the joke, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking fig leaves were the same back then as they are now. We're not quite sure, but uh, uh, fig leaves are, are pretty scratchy, itchy, okay? So it's kind of ironic. I'm not sure. Maybe the plants were different because we know that the world's changed a lot, okay? So I don't want to spend all my time there, but it's kind of funny that we always like to mention. But their eyes were opened first. In other words, guilt and shame all of a sudden became the norm. It showed up in their lives. And as humans, we can't function with guilt and shame, can we? So what do we do? We try to cover our shame. Same thing as Adam and Eve did. Do away with our guilt by covering our shame. And, and we do this through the works of our hands. They sewed fig leaves together. And this is really the beginning of religion on earth. You know, trying to cover man's, you know, through man's works, we can get back to God, kind of the whole idea. Religion is man's effort to cover our guilt and, and shame before God. However, I want you to understand, God did not accept their coverings. He didn't accept that. So he made coverings from animal skins. Why? I mean, do fig leaves not do the job? Was it good enough for them? No. To show them that only through death, only a blood sacrifice, that their sins would be covered. See, God said in Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of the creature is in the blood. I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. The word atonement here means to cover in Old Testament times, God allowed a suitable sacrifice to die for the guilty party. And the animal sacrifice was done with blood. And the blood was shed. This allowed God to cover their sins. This is what Yom Kippur is for, for Israel, a day of covering, a day of atonement. And we see this in the New Testament also in, in <coughs> Hebrews 9.22. In fact, the law requires that <coughs> nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. See, Adam and Eve had this guilt and shame, and they tried to cover it with their own hands, in other words, religion. They sewed fig leaves together, covered their nakedness. But in the eye, you know, God's eyes, this was unacceptable. He wanted to communicate to them that only through a blood sacrifice could their sins be atoned for. He took two animals, and while they stood there, he did something they'd never seen before. God killed them. The animals. He took the skins and he, I don't know how, you know, did it take time? Did he hang it out so it became leather? I don't know. All I know is that he took the skins and he covered their nakedness. He made them clothes out of that. This reinforces the idea that sin brings forth what? Death. Either the death of the sinner or the death of the substitute. Either way, it brings death. This looks forward to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who shed his blood to wash away what? Our sins. See, his blood was the only blood that was able to wipe us completely clean, not just cover us. All the animal sacrifices that came before that was something just to cover you. He actually washed us clean. One last thought on this. Their physical nakedness brought shame. 
You know, it's interesting, God didn't go, don't be ashamed. People today uh, want to say, well, God made this beauty. Okay, not, not necessarily talking about me, but, you know, the human body. Well, God made this. It should be appreciated. We shouldn't be ashamed of our, our naked body. We should celebrate it. But God didn't feel this way, did He? He didn't go to them and say, <clears throat> I made the body, don't hide it. No, God gave them coverings. He, he covered their nakedness because it's only legitimate in private, not public. There are certain situations where nakedness doesn't, you know, you shouldn't be ashamed. But out in public, you should, I mean, that's not something we, right? Okay, you, you agree with me? Good. In context of being in public, nakedness is inappropriate. Jeremiah 6.15, Israel had gotten to a place of really low morals at this point. And it says, are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. See, we're living in a time that we're so comfortable with exposing our bodies in one way or another, there's no longer any shame that comes along with the issue. If you're modest, people look at you like something is wrong with you. Okay, I don't mean modest as in covering from head to toe. You can't ever show any skin, okay? I don't mean that. I'm just saying if you're just modest at all, people look at you like you're, there's something wrong. And we see this everywhere. We see this on TVs. We see this in movies and, and magazines. We have a nation that's really sick with pornography. It's a cancer, and God's going to judge, uh, judge that. We no longer blush. See, our world justifies everything because we no longer have a conscience. We don't have the conscience of God. We have camouflaged sin so much that we don't even recognize sin when it's right in front of us. And God calls it killing. I mean, he knits us together in the wound, and the world calls it the woman's right to choose. 60 million since 1973. 1.5 million a year. You know, auto deaths are anywhere from 30 to 40,000 a year, depending on the year it goes kind of up and down. 1.5 million babies a year. I say she's already made her choice when she had sex. That's when the choice should have been made. I mean, a baby has a heartbeat starting at six weeks. God calls it drunkenness. We call it alcoholism, a social disease. God calls it sodomy. We call it homosexuality and an alternative lifestyle. God calls it perversion. We call it, or we call it pornography, adult entertainment. America has gone from being against ungodly things. And I'm not saying, oh, you know, you can go back and some, some founders were, were very godly men. Some founders were atheists and didn't really believe in God. You know, we, but we were kind of... You know, godly principles were there. In other words, morals were there at the beginning of our nations. And those have been thrown out the window where America will just accept anything. We went from tolerating them, you know, from, from pushing back saying, no, the, the, those aren't good at all, to tolerating them, to accepting them, to all of a sudden we're promoting them. And we've, well, we've lost our ability to blush. We don't even think twice about it. It's sad. 
Verse 8, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. See, God created us for this loving fellowship, and before sin entered, God would come and fellowship with us, and he would be down there with Adam and Eve and all that. But sin caused man to what? Run in shame and hide from God ever since. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? It's interesting that while man was hiding, God was seeking them out. Sinful man was, was never really seeking God out until he draws us in. Some of us would say, well, that's not really true. I search for God and I'm sinful. Well, that's because the Holy Spirit was drawing you towards him. Jesus is a good shepherd and he's out there looking for his lost sheep. He's trying to search for them. He's drawing them in. You don't realize that he's looking for you. You don't realize that uh, he's out there calling your name. Have you ever been out at a, you know, when you're a kid over at somebody's house and you're playing, you're just having fun, not even a clue that your parent is out there hollering your name? I've been trying to call you for five minutes, ten minutes, thirty minutes. That's God. He's out there looking for us. and We don't even realize it. <laughs> but we feel a, a tug in our heart that says, that, man, I'm not living right, and I need to get with Jesus. I need to ask for forgiveness. Man doesn't look for God. God says the depraved man, depraved man does, doesn't seek God. Instead, instead, we hide. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. God is not out there to get us. He's out there to find us, to save us. When God said to Abram or uh, to Adam, "Where are you?" I wish we could hear God's you know inflection under your voice. Was it stern? Where are you? Was it gentle? Where, where are you? Was it earnest? Hey, where, where are you? What was the inflection? I'm convinced it was like a father looking for a lost child. Verse 10, it says, He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid, and he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, God already knew what happened. He's just giving his child a chance here, okay? I do this with my children. Grayson, did you eat that cookie? I mean, his mouth is just covered in crumbs. It's on his shirt. His hands are all, you know, covered in crumbs. And he looks at me and smiles and goes, no? Trying to get him to learn when to tell the truth. You know, can I trust him? And over time, we'll do that. But in Revelation 13, 8, it says... The lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. You know, God is om, uh, omniscient. He knew from the beginning what would happen. Just like in the garden, he knew what happened. He knew the answer before he asked the question. Did you eat from the tree? He's looking for a confession. Jesus did this, you know, the same thing in the garden of Gethsemane. Judas shows up. He'd already told, you know, the twelve, somebody's going to betray me. And Judas, is it I? So, I mean, they already kind of knew something was up. They didn't know exactly. But Judas shows up with the soldiers. Jesus knows what's coming. And he looks at him and says, Friend, why have you come? He knew the answer. He's given Judas a chance to repent and ask for forgiveness. He knew that Judas wouldn't. 
But now Judas could never say, well, Jesus never gave me a chance. You see, it's kind of the whole point. God gives us chance after chance after chance so we can never go to God and accuse God. You didn't give me a chance. Psalms 90, verse 8 says, You have set out our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. In Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we give or we must give account. You see, God knows. He already knows. It's amazing that even though God knows our sinful life, he still invited me to be a part of his family. He adopted us. I mean, how many couples that knew all the sins that the child would commit in the lifetime would have children or adopt children? Would you adopt them into your family? Most people go, yeah. I mean, they're my kids. Some people would go, I don't know. But our God, our, our God did. He knows our sins, and he still invited us. Did you know there's good sinners and bad sinners? What I mean is this, is there's moral sinners and immoral sinners. I mean, we're all sinners. And the Word of God says what? All sinners deserve what? Hell. All sinners deserve to be separated from God completely. But many of us think we're good sinners, therefore we go to heaven. No, 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 no. All sinners go to hell. But here's the beauty of God. Even the really bad sinners, God is invited to the party. No matter what we've done, nothing is beyond the grace of God. No one can ever say, well, I'm really bad. God can't handle me. I'm going to walk into the doors of the church and the walls are going to fall down. You cannot say that. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Every sinner, every good sinner and every really bad sinner, he came to save. We just have to respond, and that's on us. Verse 12, it says, the man said, the woman you put here with me, it was her, it was her. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate I mean, we, we talked about how Genesis is the book of beginnings. And here we see the beginning of passing the buck. You know what I mean? The blame game. God tried to get man to admit to their sin, and they blamed someone else. It's funny that he blamed it on Eve. I mean, he was standing right there. <coughs> I mean, it's interesting he didn't say, well, it's your fault, God. You're the one that put the tree there. I mean, it's funny. I mean, <laughs> could have gone all the way there, you know? Or he could have gone, you know, the man could have said, well, you know, it's her fault, but, but God, you're the one that put me to sleep and made me a companion, so really it's your fault that you made this woman that deceived me. I mean, there's all sorts of little avenues that you could go on that. But the whole thing is not admitting to the sin. You know, Brandon gets upset with Grayson every now and then, and Brandon will leave some candy or a cookie or dessert that he's saving for later, you know? And he'll leave it on the table. Well, 
Our three-year-old, almost three-year-old, likes to climb. This kid, I mean, Brandon would just say, get out of the chair, and Brandon would get out of the chair, okay? No, no, no. Grayson, he gets halfway up the chair, or he's standing in the chair, and you say, get down. He just looks at you and smiles. And you have to get really stern with him before he realizes, oh, you really want me to get, oh, you, you really want me to get out. Oh, oh, okay, why didn't you say so? You know, that's kind of, you can see that going on that. But Brandon will come over after Grayson has gotten into whatever dessert that Brandon was saving. And man, Brandon will get upset. He ate my stuff and he gets all upset about it. And, and you know, now whose fault is it? Well, it's both their fault. I mean, Grayson is immature and doesn't know how to ask. And Brandon, who's mature enough to know not to leave it out, did an immature action. And he left it out. But Brandon does what? He puts all the blame on Grayson. He ate my stuff. That's what Adam did. She made me do it. There are consequences to all in this blame game. You know, God only gives us good things. It's up to us to either live in that goodness or turn it into a bad thing. I have a friend who God has given multiple good opportunities when it comes to jobs. Jobs this person shouldn't have gotten in the first place. You know what I mean? It's like all of a sudden, you know, it's like the favor of God was on them and they got this job and, and God has really blessed them and you're sitting there going, how'd you end up with that job? That's great. Unfortunately, this friend keeps screwing it up. So they lay them off or they outright fire them because he just, you know, we have to do our part. Don't turn it into something bad when God blesses us. Here's another example. God, say you own a company and God has blessed you, so you start to work even harder. You start working 60 hours or 80 hours, and, and, but now your marriage and your family and, and, and all that starts to suffer and that turns bad. You took something that was really good that God gave you and you turned it bad. He's not responsible for the blessings that he gives us. That's on us. God is a good God. He wants to bless us. And it's up to us to make it, you know, make that blessing into something great, something beneficial to us and those around us. We all get a chance to say to God, I want to be your child. Everyone gets that chance. And it's either up to, you know, it's up to us to either say <coughs> yes or no. And the one that says no will stand before God and be judged to hell. Because they've rejected God. It's not God's fault. God is just honoring their choice. It's not God's fault that Eve took the fruit. It's not God's fault that Adam took a bite also. What God's been doing ever since is trying to get us back to Him. Ever since that happened. Our Lord is a gracious God and wants to bless His children. And the biggest blessing for us is His grace, not getting what we deserve. It is a gift that we are saved by grace. Praise the Lord. But the devil takes this and he turns it into bad. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that all things are lawful for me. I've been saved by grace, but not all things are helpful 
See, Satan wants to abuse, abuse God's grace to diminish the blessing that God has given us in this life. So we become ineffective at being God's calling card to the world. You understand what I'm saying? God has given you this ultimate gift of being his child, and he wants to turn us to, so we're so ineffective that we're the calling card. But man, people look at us and go, if that's the calling card for God, I don't know if I want God. Satan wants us to be ineffective. We need to start asking this question or, or making the statement in our lives. I could do, and it's blank. So anytime you're, should I do this, should I not do this? I could do, fill in the blank, but will it get me closer to Jesus or drive me away from him? See, that's the question we should be asking in everything we do. If Adam and Eve would have done this, I could eat of the fruit, but will that get me closer to God or drive me away from God? God wants to bless us. God does not want to do what he does to Adam and Eve and kicks them out of the garden. God didn't want that. But God needed to, to protect the sanctity of life. He needed to do that to protect the, the two trees there so, so man wouldn't live forever in that sin. And God started a redemptive plan of coming here to save you and I. And that's him dying for our sins that covers us completely that wipes it away, that cleans us instead of just covering it like the animal skin in Adam and Eve. God knows when you're running from Him and He says, come back to me. Come back to me. Well, why don't you stand and we'll pray as the worship team comes and leads us out today. Lord, that we, would be, that we would be people that would come back to you. That we would be the ones that would say, Lord, <clears throat> I've really screwed up this part of my life or I've really gone off in this direction that maybe I shouldn't have gone off on. Lord, I really want you to be a part of everything in my life. That we would be those people and that you would respond with blessing, that you would respond with love and mercy and grace that we not turn off the conscience in our life, that we not, to, uh, not turn off the alarm, that we use that alarm, that we set that alarm so we know when something is not of you and that we would come back and say, Lord, accept me. And you say, come here, my child. Come here, my child. Mm. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face shine down upon you. May he light the path back to him when you go astray. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.